This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rob Soslow, who is a professor at Weill Cornell Medicine and attending pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Welcome, Rob. Thanks so much. The uh, topic of our discussion today is going to be uh, the importance and the clinical relevance of a classification in patients with cervical cancer, particularly cervical adenocarcinoma. And Rob, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the uh, importance of a classification in uh, cervical adenocarcinoma and uh, how these classifications have evolved. Yeah, my pleasure. In contrast to cervical squamous cell carcinoma, which all of us know is almost entirely attributable to infection with human papillomavirus, endocervical adenocarcinomas really represent a mixture of tumors that are associated with HPV and those that are unassociated with HPV. Previous classifications proposed by the World Health Organization have largely ignored this really crucial aspect um, regarding endocervical adenocarcinomas. And in the past, endocervical adenocarcinomas have been classified solely by the way they look under the microscope, um, almost without regard to uh, clinical outcomes. Therefore, a group of international pathologists from seven countries uh, convened to study 400 endocervical adenocarcinomas, obviously from around the world, with the aim of creating a classification system that was clinically relevant. Um, What we decided up front was to classify the tumors based on etiology, said in another way, classified based on the presence or absence of association with human papillomavirus. And we did the analysis using hematoxylin and eosin slides only, so standard pathological evaluation. And we decided, or or at least our hypothesis at the beginning, was that tumors associated with human papillomavirus would have certain morphological features principally easily identified mitotic figures and apoptotic bodies at scanning magnification, whereas those tumors unassociated with human papillomavirus would not demonstrate those features. So we went through those 400 cases and we stratified them using those a priori um, uh, criteria And what we found uh, was honestly not surprising to gynecological pathologists, and that is that only 85% of endocervical adenocarcinomas are attributable to human papillomavirus, whereas 15% are not. Um, We validated our um, a priori classification scheme with P16 immunohistochemistry and also with a brand new type of human papillomavirus in situ hybridization probe based on recognition of RNA from the E6 and uh, E7 components of the HPV genome. Uh, This assay recognizes 18 different types of high-risk HPV and is very easy to interpret and uh, far outpaces um, competing 
PV evaluation schemes, such as the pre-existing DNA-based in-situ hybridization for HPV. And we found really outstanding concordance uh, between our morphological impression and the HPV status. For example, um, approximately 92% of cases that we thought were HPV related um, showed either P16 overexpression or recognizable, easily recognizable signals with the HPV probe. And Rob, in the pathology community, having learned the results of this um, uh, evaluation, um, moving forward, then what has been the, the impact in how you evaluate uh, these tumors? Yeah. So this is, we're really at the beginning of the story now. Obviously, it's hard to predict um, exactly what will happen with this classification scheme. We obviously hope that it will be incorporated into the next edition of the World Health Organization classification of gynecologic tumors, which should be published within the next two years. Uh, what we anticipate is that endocervical adenocarcinomas should obviously be stratified into HPV-associated and unassociated types, just as we do in the vulva and the oropharynx, uh, where there are uh, quite good data indicating that the HPV-associated tumors are lower clinical risk tumors and are... Uh, more successfully treated with uh, current uh, chemotherapeutic and radiotherapeutic um, interventions. Um, we still have a lot more work to do on the human papillomavirus unassociated adenocarcinomas because obviously they're much less common. Uh, we do have some, uh, I would say, circumstantial evidence or anecdotal data that treating HPV unassociated tumors uh, according to the current standard of care, which of course was developed with um, the assumption that all endocervical carcinomas were HPV associated is probably not appropriate or at least not beneficial in patients whose tumors are unassociated with human papillomavirus. And Rob, can you tell us a little bit about the reproducibility of, uh, of this application of classification? In other words, will two pathologists be able to uh, come up with the same finding? Yeah, we do anticipate that that will be the case. Uh, first of all, we designed, again, those a priori criteria to be very simple. That is, again, um, recognizing mitotic figures and apoptotic bodies at low power magnification, something that is very simple and really almost any uh, pathologist with a bit of experience can do. Uh, the group from Sunnybrook and Women's Hospital in Toronto did a study um, looking at the reproducibility of our classification, and they found that uh, when the question was, can you distinguish between an HPV-associated and unassociated adenocarcinoma, the kappa values were really good. Um, and we hope uh, that there are more reproducibility studies uh, that come to the same conclusion. And as a follow-up to that, um, do you feel that such uh, a finding and such classification modification would impact the surveillance of patients 
who are diagnosed with this uh, with these types of tumors, particularly obviously in very early tumors? Yeah, obviously a really important question, but also a tough tough one to answer. Historically, um, it has been very difficult to identify HPV unassociated uh, tumors with conventional pap testing. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, is their rarity. Another reason is that the pap test really was designed as a screening test for HPV-associated tumors, primarily squamous cell carcinomas, not adenocarcinomas. Uh, and furthermore, um, the most common type of HPV-unassociated adenocarcinoma being the so-called gastric type adenocarcinoma does not arise in the transformation zone. Um, instead, in most cases, it um, arises in the upper endocervical canal um, as it transitions into the lower uterine segment, meaning that uh, traditional pap testing is unlikely uh, to detect uh, such tumors. Furthermore, many of those gastric type adenocarcinomas are extremely well differentiated, meaning that on a pap test, uh, tumor cells themselves may resemble benign endocervical cells. Now that we're moving to an HPV-based screening system in uh, resource-rich countries, um, I think we will become even better at detecting um, uh, early lesions, adenocarcinoma in situ, related to HPV infection, but this kind of screening process will miss the 15% of patients with endocervical adenocarcinoma who harbor these unusual HPV unassociated tumors. In Japan, uh, a country in which approximately 20 or 25% of all endocervical carcinomas are HPV unassociated, uh, cytologists and gynecologic pathologists are far more engaged and, and far more motivated to recognize these rare um, endocervical carcinoma types. And they have devised uh, several uh, systems, uh, largely uh, confined really to the Japanese population, which serve as an aid to detecting early lesions. Uh, but this has really not been exported to the rest of the world. Yes, and, and that actually brings up a very good point. With regards to integrating these, uh, these testings, uh, obviously a large uh, component of the community of the uh, readership of the journal, it's in low-resource regions. Is this something that is feasible for the pathologists in those areas? Um, well, I, I, hate to be a, I hate to be pessimistic, um, but I, I think this is going to be an enormous challenge. Obviously, the, uh, most of the mortality from cervical carcinoma, almost all of it, honestly, is due to HPV-related disease. And I think if we're able uh, to detect and intervene early in the disease process, particularly with HPV-associated tumors, we will have scored a home run. Um, and, and I think that that's where all of our resources should be spent. Um, and once we uh, detect a decreasing frequency of um, invasive HPV-associated 
squamous and adenocarcinomas of the cervix, I think. Only then will it be time uh, to really implement directed screening measures to detect HPV unassociated adenocarcinomas. And Rob, I was wondering if you can just speak a little bit about the prognostic impact of this classification. Sure, my pleasure. Um, Obviously, part of the exercise of distinguishing between HPV-associated and unassociated endocervical adenocarcinomas was not just validation of our methodology, but of course, we always have an eye on the patients and their outcomes. Uh, And we anticipated different clinical outcomes when comparing these uh, two tumor types Uh, particularly, as I've said before, based on um, what we know about vulvar carcinomas and oropharyngeal carcinomas. And in fact, we found very similar results. Uh, HPV-associated adenocarcinomas uh, tend to be smaller as compared to patients with unassociated tumors. Uh, They occur in uh, patients that are uh, approximately a decade younger they present with, uh, it, at least in developed countries, with low stage disease um, and are usually very successfully uh, managed using um, state of the art uh, surgery, uh, radiation, and chemotherapy. Um, when we looked at the population of HPV unassociated adenocarcinomas, which again are primarily represented by the gastric type adenocarcinomas, uh, we found obviously those tumors were larger, presented at higher stage in slightly older individuals. Um, and these patients had a significantly worse progression-free survival and disease-specific survival as compared to patients with HPV-associated Um, adenocarcinomas. Uh, We did some additional kind of add-on statistical analyses, and uh, uh, there certainly seems to be a trend indicating that conventional therapeutic approaches are ineffective uh, or not highly effective in HPV unassociated adenocarcinomas. And we can see this particularly in patients who experience pelvic recurrences, um, where there are significant differences in survival uh, that are maintained um, in the HPV-associated adenocarcinomas. When the tumors metastasize to lymph nodes or to different sites, that's uh, when we fail to find significant differences in outcome. And then do you foresee then uh, the HPV-unassociated adenocarcinomas Um, this being a risk factor in and of itself that should drive a different type of uh, adjuvant therapy recommendation? Absolutely. Um, You know, there are possible opportunities for making use of targeted therapies because we're just now accumulating, uh, for example, genomic data uh, regarding what drives these tumors. And uh, hopefully we we'll find that uh, some of those abnormalities are targetable. And Rob, one one question that uh, certainly may be um, 
challenging to to answer, but um, put all of this in the context of the HPV vaccination. Yeah. So we obviously anticipate that uh, frequency of uh, precursor and invasive lesions attributable to HPV infection should fall dramatically uh, due to the HPV vaccine. And although we do not expect an increased um, incidence of HPV unassociated adenocarcinomas, we will certainly experience an increased prevalence of those tumors. We do obviously do not expect that the vaccine uh, would prevent these HPV unassociated tumors. Well, Rob, it's been a a really great pleasure to speak with you. Any uh, closing remarks you want to make? Well, um, sure. I would uh, really encourage the readership to check out our publications from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center um, and the uh, six other participating institutions, um, particularly uh, participation uh, from the Romanian pathologist Simona Stolniku, who's the first author on all the publications and all of uh, the wonderful other uh, collaborators. You can find these publications in the American Journal of Surgical Pathology, in Modern Pathology, and even in Gynecologic Oncology. And I would love the opportunity to write an editorial or a review article for the IGCS Journal um, so that we can transfer um, uh, knowledge that's been primarily uh, published in pathology journals into the clinical realm. We'll consider that uh, invitation accepted. All right. And uh, thank you very much for your time. This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief for the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer.